Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Monedelics. Today, I have one of the people that is responsible for my favorite project in El Salvador, which is Mi Premier Bitcoin. So let's start talking to John so he will be able to introduce himself and the company. So hello, John. How are you? I'm great. How are you doing today? Great. Thank you very much for the opportunity to share with us uh, what you do, because I think it, it's amazing. And as I was telling you, it's my favorite project in El Salvador. And if someone saw my interview in Bitcoin Basic Podcast, I say it actually at the end. And even if I'm not involved yet with you guys, because I've been busy, I've just moved here to El Salvador. I follow you and I think what you do is amazing because education is key. So, John, can you introduce yourself and also talk to us about how did you get to El Salvador? How did you get into Bitcoin? Right. I'll try to keep it short. These could be long answers, right? <laughs> I mean, two Bitcoiners talking about Bitcoin could just, you know, we could go on a lot of tangents. Yeah, my name is John. I'm originally from New York. I've been in El Salvador. I moved to El Salvador in August of last year. And I've been here ever since. I am the founder of Meet Premier Bitcoin, which is a Bitcoin education nonprofit focused on El Salvador. I read an article in early 2013 about Cyprus. There was a bank bail-in there. So quick recap, if people don't know, the government of Cyprus had some financial issues. They had some debt that they needed to pay. So their solution was to take it from the citizens to give everyone a haircut. They took, I think it was like something like 12% out of everyone's bank account. And I read an article about this and I was obviously not happy. Like what the f So there was a line in the article that said, Bitcoin users unaffected. And I was like, what's Bitcoin? Why is that unaffected? So, you know, I looked up Bitcoin and I started going down the rabbit hole and I was like, wow, this is amazing. You know, this is money that exists outside the control of government. And that is something that is very attractive to me. So going back a little bit further, I had lived in Ecuador for a few years previous to that. There was a revolution, new government that took over, didn't recognize the visa that I had from the old government. I was deported. But in that, the government seized all my assets, right? I had a bank account there and they took everything. So like the importance of separation of money and state was something that was very obvious to me because of personal experience. I was very excited to learn about Bitcoin. I actually bought my first Bitcoin probably within a few days from when I heard about it. And then I lost it the next day. You know, the exchange <laughs> that I bought it on was hacked. So that's just how Bitcoin was then. So to El Salvador, like I mentioned, I had lived in Ecuador. So Latin America is a place that I'm very fond of. I've spent a good chunk of my adult life in Latin America, living here, mostly in Ecuador, but also in Nicaragua and Colombia. So when I heard about Bitcoin, or you know what? I'm sorry. Let me back this up a little bit more. Uh -huh. I'm trying to keep this short, but there's just so much. During the pandemic, I was in New York. New York was a crazy place. I'm sure the whole world was crazy then, but New York was really wild then. And it really made me think about the world. I spent a lot of time by myself on long walks, just pondering the world. And it seemed clear to me that we were on a path toward a cliff. We were not heading in the right direction and it couldn't last. We needed to change something. You know, already being in Bitcoin, it just really made me think even deeper about Bitcoin and the role that it might play in the future and how, how it might bring about a better world. 
once out of the pandemic, you know, I actually moved to Ecuador, back to Ecuador then, and I was living there and I, I helped some people with Bitcoin education there because I realized that no one I knew in Ecuador knew anything about Bitcoin. And those were the people that really needed it more than people in New York. I knew plenty of people in New York that had Bitcoin. They didn't use it, but they had it, right? They had bought it as, as like an investment. And what a shame if we reimagine the world and make the same mistakes, you know, the same people, the same places that held undue power in the old world. What a shame if they hold it in the new one, in the one that emerges. So I, I thought it was really important that we focus on places like Ecuador and, and now El Salvador and make sure that they're at the forefront because they're the ones that need it. So then when I heard about El Salvador, about adopting Bitcoin, then it, it was just a combination of things that I think are really special and really important. I love Latin America and I love Bitcoin. So it, it just seemed right. Again, I moved here in August of last year then. When did you start me Premier Bitcoin? How did it work? How was the process? Yeah. So kind of like the prehistory was at Ecuador of last year when I gave some Bitcoin to someone to teach in their local community by actually giving them Bitcoin so they could actually use it. That was kind of like a, a trial, if you could say. It, was, it just happened twice. But then I thought when I heard about El Salvador, then I thought, could that work for a country rather than just a community? And uh Honestly, I had no idea, you know, but it seemed something worth pondering. So in the time before I moved to El Salvador in the couple of months, I spent a lot of time just talking about it with friends and trying to wrap my head around it a little bit better, writing a basic mission statement, getting a web page and all that. I have no idea if this was a worthy idea or not. It really became apparent how important education would be. When I arrived like a year and a half ago, Bitcoin Beach was obviously already around and, and going strong. And shout out to Bitcoin Beach. They're the, the little project that started it all and changed everything. But aside from Bitcoin Beach, like here in the capital in San Salvador, there was nothing. There was zero Bitcoin adoption, zero Bitcoin knowledge. And it was so strange because we were weeks away from it becoming legal tender and no one knew anything about Bitcoin here. It seemed very apparent how important education would be. So, you know, I, I met some really great people in those first few weeks, some really great Salvadorians who were new to the space, but curious. They wanted to learn more. They wanted to do more. They wanted to help. You know, by the end of September, we had our first class. It was September 24th of last year was our first class and uh, humble beginnings. <laughs> our first class was in a borrowed yoga studio between sessions and one person came. And for the whole month of September, we had a total of three classes and five people came total. We didn't shoot out. <laughs> it's tough to get started. That's the toughest thing is going from zero to one. But we've grown very quickly since then. The next month we had 79 and then almost 300 students. And so for the year, a little bit less than 500. And this year, we anticipate that we'll have around 10,000 students. We 20x'd from one year to the next. And we expect to do at least that next year. Wow. So let me ask you something. You understand the importance of Bitcoin, like not only practically, but also like philosophically and meaning we need to separate state from the money because state has too much control. Okay. Now the question is the people that come to Mi Primer Bitcoin to learn how to use Bitcoin, do they understand that? And that's what pushes them to learn about Bitcoin or how do they get there? 
It's just because El Salvador has adopted Bitcoin as legal tender. What do you see happening? Yeah, so El Salvador is, is a really special place, right? Because it is the first country to adopt Bitcoin. So I think the motivations of students here are different than they would be in other places. So when they leave the class, then the hope is, and often the, the reality is that they do have that deeper understanding. But oftentimes, you know, our target demographic are Salvadorians who are brand new to Bitcoin. So we're really going after people who are curious, but don't have much more knowledge about Bitcoin than extremely basic. So most of our students don't come in with these deeper notions already imbued in them. That, that's something that we try to teach them. But they come in mostly out of curiosity. Now, sometimes because we have the Bitcoin diploma, which we run in a few public schools, sometimes it's just like coursework that they have to take. That's also because of that demographic, because of the age group. It seems to be an age that is just really open to new ideas, to new things. So they also have this really deep sense of curiosity. I find that a lot of like our students just tend to be very curious about Bitcoin that I think that's the main motivator for most of our students. What's the average age of your students? You know, it's interesting because in our intro classes, so we have two main class types. One is just a one-off intro class, which is just a 90-minute class, and it just goes through the basics. They're always free. In fact, we give away some sats in the class so people could experiment with it and open to the public. And then we have the Bitcoin Diploma, which is a 10-week course, which we teach out of a couple of public high schools. And starting next week, we're going to work with a couple of mayors in the eastern part of the country to teach it out of like city halls there. So obviously, when we teach the diploma up until now in the public school system, then, then they've been teenagers, right? They've been like 15, 16, 17 years old. But our intro classes, I would have expected it to skew a little bit younger but there's a lot of people like in 30s, 40s, 50s, you know, people that maybe have their own business or, and are just trying to wrap their head around what's happening in Bitcoin. I would have expected it to skew a little bit younger than it does. But again, our Bitcoin diploma does skew young, but that's mostly because it's high school. It's in high school. Yeah, so that's very interesting. And I wanted to touch on a point that you said before about I live on the beach. I live close to World Tunecoin to Bitcoin Beach. And yes, here it's pretty common Bitcoin, most, not most people, but it's not hard to find people that know about Bitcoin or use Bitcoin. But when I go in the city, I feel like it's a lot harder. And yeah. it's kind of a little bit disheartening sometimes because in my mind, how is it possible your country just adopted Bitcoin as a legal tender and you don't even take the time to find out what the heck is this thing? You know? And I've noticed that maybe because I've been dealing with people like over 40, 50, 60, you know, looking for cars or uh, these other kind of things, you know. So what do you think is happening and how do you think we can get an older demographic to get curious about Bitcoin? So I think touching on your point about the lack of adoption in, in the city in San Salvador, and actually I would say that San Salvador is ahead of a lot of other parts of the country, right? El Dante is obviously like in that area is, is where there's the most adoption. I think San Salvador is probably the second most, even though it's such a big drop off from El Dante. I think a lot of people who aren't here, they presume an extreme. They presume that everyone uses Bitcoin or no one uses Bitcoin, right? It's something in between, as it often is. The truth is somewhere in between. But I think what's really important, which maybe we should be focusing on, is the trend. Because like I said, a little more than a year ago, it was zero. I mean, yes, there were surely a bunch of people using Bitcoin two years ago, three years ago, but I'm talking like one in a thousand, one in 10,000, like it was essentially zero. And I don't know what the correct estimate is, but let's say, I think in San Salvador, it's probably somewhere between 10 and 20% are 
Bitcoin users, like people that really, they know what they're doing with, with Bitcoin, right? They grasp at least the basic concepts. They use it at least occasionally. That's from zero, right? On the one hand, that seems like, oh, that number should be higher. But on the other hand, to go from zero to 10 or 20% in what has mostly been a downtrend in price is actually pretty incredible, right? And that's, impressive, yeah. It's quite a clear trend. If we could keep on that trend, then I think we're, you know, slowly, then suddenly, I think things will surprise us. I think what we need in order to fix that, we need a few things. One is time, right? We just need a little bit more time. But another thing is like, we're all learning lessons. We're all learning what works and what doesn't work. And that's collectively as Bitcoiners, right? We're all kind of learning like in our own lives, like what is an effective approach here, but also in the different projects that exist here, projects and companies, they're also learning. Like I could speak just from the point of view of me from Bitcoin, the learning curve is pretty steep, right? I don't have prior experience with this and most other people in the project or maybe no one in the project does. And, and I think that's true across a lot of the space here in El Salvador. So we're learning a lot of lessons. And I anticipate that instead of having, you know, 500 to 10,000 students is great, but we're going to go from 10,000 to hundreds of thousands next year. And we're going to do that because we've learned a lot of lessons, right? Like we learned what works, we made connections and inroads, and we're also just going to be more efficient with our energy, time, resources, all that. So I think the future is bright and we're definitely on the right track, even though this is a long fight, but I'm confident that the trend is very clear. I agree 100% that the trend is clear. And I think El Salvador has a bright future. That's also why I'm here. And I think people will get to Bitcoin. I just, in my mind, don't understand how people like curiosity sometimes. But I guess maybe, you know, there's 6 million people in El Salvador. Like my sample probably is extremely small to have an opinion. It's just that if you go from El Zonte to San Salvador, you feel the difference. And it's kind of, uh, it has an impact. But as you said, if 10, 20% of the population in El Salvador Salvador knows and uses Bitcoin, I think it's pretty incredible, to be honest. I thought we were not even in double digits, honestly. So when yeah. you said that, it's, wow, it's way better than I thought. Yeah, I don't know what the real number is, right? And it depends how we measure it. But if you change that number to 5% or to 30%, then it's still... It's still it's good. Good. And the hardest part, what we focus on with Me Premier Bitcoin is getting people off of zero, right? Because we believe that that is the hardest part of the journey. The first it, step. Yeah, is the first step. The first step is the hardest part of the journey. And that is true for the whole country, right? Like the hardest part is just taking that first step. That's the world that we live in. The world that we live in that we are trying to replace is one in which we don't have personal responsibility. It's one in which we don't really have agency. It's one in which we accept rather than question. And that is something that we're going to change. That is something that we are collectively going to change. We're going to build a better world. But the reality of the current world is that people are reluctant to change, to question, and to take agency in their own lives. I think we see that. Yeah, I've noticed that people, they need to touch bottom or something very, very bad that needs to happen to them for them to start thinking, okay, maybe I need to learn something else. Maybe I need to start questioning or thinking a little more yeah. deeply about what's going on. Yeah. And there will be a critical mass too, right? There will be people that, I mean, there are people, right? This is happening right now, that there are people that have adopted Bitcoin six months ago and 
it's served a real purpose. It's really benefited them. And that could be in a number of different ways, right? It could be for censorship resistance, you know, people that have family maybe in Venezuela and they found this new way to send value across borders where there's restrictions. It could be people that accept it at their business and they have like a smaller fee than what a credit card would charge and they got some new customers because of it. So it helps their bottom line. It could be people that were able to connect with the outside world in a way that they weren't. It could be a variety of different things, but there's real benefit in their life. And then their neighbor, their friend, their colleague sees that and they're like, huh, maybe I should look into this. I think there becomes this network effect, which I think we're just starting to see. So John, what do you think El Salvador government could do better or could do more of it to help the adoption of Bitcoin? Because personally, I don't see a lot of Bitcoin advertising or a lot of push from the government to the people about Bitcoin. What do you think? I think there's definitely a lot of truth in that. I think El Salvador is, again, a pretty unique example because things happen quickly. And I think there was a reason for things to happen quickly, right? From the announcement to the adoption, I think was in the assembly to pass a law. I think it was literally two or three days later. And then it was 90 days after that where it went into effect. So it was a very fast timeline. There wasn't a lot of time to set up that proper infrastructure i think something that's really important that the government did that I think maybe is underappreciated is that they have given permission. They have given permission for people to act. You know, we have taken that. Mupamara Bitcoin has taken that permission, right? What we do here, we wouldn't be able to do in another place. We just started teaching Bitcoin, right? We didn't ask permission from everyone because there's this tactic permission that exists here. You know, in a variety of different places, we just started teaching people about Bitcoin. And then, you know, it got momentum. And now at this point, we are in communication with the government and we try to help each other. Although we do try to remain neutral, right? That, that's really important that we're impartial and independent. But also there's a recognition that there are infrastructure that they have that is really useful for Bitcoin education. So the fact that an organization like Meet Premier Bitcoin just could get started is something that's special here. And I can't imagine it having gone as well anywhere else. I can't imagine there being as little resistance from the government. Like if we did the same thing, we took the same playbook and we did that, I don't know, anywhere else in the world, then I think there would have been more government and bureaucratic obstacles to overcome. I think that's, even though, yes, the government could do more. And I do think that they are working on that to do more. I think it's really important just the idea that they tactically support what's happening. Yeah, I need to double click on that permission. That's a very powerful word. I didn't think about that. So I really like this because it's true. The government has given permission to Bitcoin educator, to me, Premier Bitcoin, to people like me to yeah. talk about Bitcoin here, to teach Bitcoin everywhere. Now, if we think about what's happening in Europe, where they're trying to ban Bitcoin or, or in right. China, we go to the other extreme. So the fact that the government has given permission, you're right, it's underappreciated by most people. Yeah. And to uh, have a quick funny now in hindsight, funny <laughs> personal side that drives home that point. So when I first got into Bitcoin, you know, it was 2013. Shortly afterwards, I moved to England. I went to grad school in England in 2013, 2014. And while I was there, I noticed that there was a pretty significant arbitrage between the price of Bitcoin for pounds and for dollars. There just wasn't much infrastructure to buy Bitcoin in England. So 
through local Bitcoins. I was able to buy Bitcoins in the United States. You know, I was in England, but buy it on with a US bank account and sell it in England for pretty significant difference and and then just recycle the money. It's actually how I paid for grad school and to live in Europe for two years. It was great. And also, I really felt like I was helping people. I sold the first Bitcoin to hundreds of different people. You know, I just made it a little bit easier for them to get Bitcoin. So I felt like, you know, I was doing my small part in things. But one of the people that I sold Bitcoin to, right, I wasn't like KYC and people or anything like that. One of the people that I sold Bitcoin to was not a good person. They were a criminal. They were a pretty major criminal. And because there was a transfer from their bank account to my bank account, the police made some presumptions that we were connected, that, you know, more than just this Bitcoin transaction. And actually, it was a, a pretty significant deal. The, the police came and they, they raided my house. Luckily, I wasn't home at the time. There was a, an investigation, a UK major crimes. I wasn't allowed to go to the country for years. I had to like explain. I had a lot of interviews where I had to explain the concept of Bitcoin to the police. And, you know, in the end, it was fine. Actually, not totally fine. They also seized all my assets as, as part of the investigation. And this time, they seized all of my assets in the bank, right? Like the pounds that I had and none of the Bitcoin, right? So this time when it happened the second time I had Bitcoin, I was able to avoid some of that. And that really drove home the point. But anyway, it scared me. Nothing happened. I mean, yeah, I lost some money and it was a hassle. But how old were you? 31, 32, somewhere in that range. I felt like I was fortunate to just lose some money, that there weren't like legal consequences, that I didn't end up in jail or anything. And, you know, I, I still was very supportive of Bitcoin. I still love Bitcoin and fully wanted it to succeed, but I didn't do anything because I was, frankly, I was afraid to work openly and publicly for Bitcoin, right? Because of the hostility that governments and states had towards it. And I felt like I had a close call and I didn't want another one. Um, I want to take a chance. Yeah. yeah, I didn't want to take that chance. And it was only when El Salvador announced that they were adopting Bitcoin as legal tender that the idea popped into my head like, huh, okay, so that means that I don't have to be afraid. I don't have to be afraid to really like, I think in order to make change, I'm an activist at heart. And in order to make change, you have to be bold. You have to push the envelope. You can't do what the powers that be, the status quo prescribes, right? You have to push. And I feel like there's the permission to do that here more so than anywhere else. That's really important. And El Salvador has been attracting people like me, people like you, so many other people that I think will be willing to push a little bit and not necessarily to push against the state here, but to push for a change, to push for a different sort of world. There's a sort of permission that exists here that doesn't exist in other places for that. I agree with that. The permission is very important. And you know what I like about the story? It sounds to me like that was your trick to orange peel all the cops in London or in England, wherever you were. How many of these cops after the investigation started buying Bitcoin because I talked to you? I mean, that, that's a great way to start, you know, like uh, we need to do what we need to do. Bitcoin is important. <laughs> Explaining Bitcoin to police in interviews was definitely not part of the plan. <laughs> Bitcoin works in mysterious ways. <laughs> yeah. 
No, that's a, that's an interesting story, and it definitely makes sense even more now to have assets in Bitcoin or to have your economic power, your monetary energy in uh, in Bitcoin. So the government can't really do much about it, you know. Yeah. So how do you see El Salvador developing from here with Bitcoin? What do you think is going to happen next in El Salvador? Well. I know El Salvador will be an example for the world. And before I circle back to answering your question more directly, mm-hmm. El Salvador will be an example to the world. We get to decide what sort of example it will be. And I think impartial, independent Bitcoin education will be the foundation to ensuring that that is a positive example, right? Which is why it's so important that that exists here, that that grows here, and that that is pure, that it is impartial and independent, because otherwise it's propaganda. Once it's telling users which products to use rather than what products exist, then it becomes propaganda. And, you know, the whole point of Bitcoin for me, not the whole point, but one of the points of Bitcoin is to encourage people to think for themselves. So it runs counter to that to dictate to them what the best way to use Bitcoin is. Like that's something that we all have to arrive at on our own. You know, our job as educators is to make sure that people have the information at their disposal so that they could make the best decisions for their own situation. I thought of that because you asked where I see El Salvador going. And I think El Salvador has a wonderful opportunity to show a new path. If it works here, a big part of whether that is yes, is education, right? The more, the better education, the the more likely that it works here. There's a very strong correlation, I would say. So it will work here, right? Like there's a lot of people here making sure that it will work. So it will work here. And that will be a signal for other countries, for other people to act, to realize that there is an alternative, right? That we don't have to follow this path towards the cliff. I'm really optimistic. And I think that's why I'm a Bitcoiner, right? Because I'm I'm an optimist. I'm an optimist at heart. I believe in Bitcoin because I believe that we can do better. I believe that we are capable of more. And Bitcoin is a tool to enable that. If I didn't believe that we were capable, that we had to be told what to do, what to believe, how to act, then I don't think I would like Bitcoin very much, right? <laughs> Yeah, and in my mind, I have no doubt that El Salvador will succeed, even because making Bitcoin legal tender has triggered in the country not only this learning process, but also this immigration of Bitcoiners. And in my mind, what happened is that the smartest people on the globe are coming here, okay? Mm-hmm. And yeah. the criminals are actually fleeing away the country, right? Yeah. So. The rest of the countries are getting the criminals from El Salvador and El Salvador are taking in the smartest and brightest uh, thinker and people. So how is not going to work? Because every time if I go out, I have conversation with people. We talk with locals, we talk with uh, tourists, and it's always an orange peeling uh, yeah. opportunity. And uh, we always take it, you know? Yeah. And there's something, you know, it's like the Lindy effect. The longer that Bitcoin survives, the more likely it is to survive and thrive. It's the same with El Salvador. The, the longer that Bitcoin survives in El Salvador, the more likely it becomes to succeed. You know, every day, people that are orange-billed don't go back. That's one more on this side that we could count on, right? Once you see it, you can't unsee it. Once yeah. you learn it, you know it. Can't go back. One of the great things about El Salvador is that 
it is small enough that we can put our thumb on the scale. It's small enough that we can make a difference, right? If this was India or Mexico, then obviously I would support it. You would support it. I mean, maybe we would still move there and we'd you know, work towards its success, but it would be a little bit more daunting, right? Like with El Salvador, it's, we could really imagine it. We could really conceptualize change in the country. And if we change the country, we change the world. And in my mind, even if Bitcoin fails everywhere in the world, but in El Salvador, what is going to happen is that El Salvador legal tender Bitcoin will become the safe haven asset for all other people around the globe that all the dollars, pound, the CBDC, whatever. What do they want to do then to preserve their purchasing power to protect from the government? They will come to El Salvador and buy El Salvador legal tender, which is going to be Bitcoin. So even in that case, Bitcoin wins in my mind. That's just my opinion that I play the scenario in my mind, you know, like in the past, people will buy this Swiss franc, you know, to protect themselves. Mm -hmm. But now that we have Bitcoin, once people learn that El Salvador cannot print more Bitcoin, cannot devalue or debase the currency, what are they going to buy? Everybody yeah. in the world. So that's the worst case scenario in my mind. And it's still a great case for Bitcoin. Yeah. One of the great things about Bitcoin is that we have influence, that we have power, right? So if you think about the Swiss franc, the dollar, whatever, you or I exist apart from that, right? Like we have no influence on what happens with that. We can't shape its future. We can with Bitcoin, right? Like the Bitcoin protocol is not exactly static, right? It's, it's ossified quite a bit, but, but there's still, you know, we just got taproot last year. There's still some changes, but I don't mean that. I mean, in how people view it, how people perceive it, how people use it. It empowers us, like Bitcoin empowers us to have a role in that. That's really wonderful. Yeah, that's a very good point. Like we can do something about Bitcoin. We can do anything about the Fed. Whatever they decide, yeah. we're going to have to suck it up yeah. and figure out how to survive in that condition. Yeah. But Bitcoin switches the power of the game to the people. So yeah. that's also very important. Imagine instead of me premier Bitcoin, it was like my first dollar or whatever. <laughs> it would just be a, a totally different situation because the user is subservient in that. Like the user just has to accept. We haven't signed a contract, but we have to accept the deal apparently with this, with the central banks yeah. <laughs> and now with the CDBC. What do you think about the CDBC coming and what do you think is going to happen in El Salvador when mm. that takes foot in the world? Is that something that we can talk about? It? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you tell me. We can talk about everything. Yeah. So like, I know that the new prime minister in the UK just this week spoke about I don't know when this is going to come out, but I, but just as we spoke about uh, his desire to have a CBDC quite directly, quite openly. And I know this is maybe a minority opinion in the Bitcoin space, but I was kind of happy to see that because my fear with central bank digital currencies is that it won't be direct and open, that it will be this roundabout way that they sneak it in, right? That it will be like in the next financial crisis, instead of governments giving a direct deposit or a check or whatever, it will be this currency, right? Or they'll tie it with aid, they'll tie it with other things, and they'll sell it as Bitcoin's great because of X, Y, and Z, but it's bad because of A, B, and C. We're going to get rid of A, B, and C and just give you X, Y, and Z. They're going to market it and sell it in a way that it's not obvious what's happening. And, you know, we are vulnerable to 
slick marketing campaigns. So when the prime minister of the UK spoke pretty openly and directly like, yeah, we want a central bank digital currency, it was almost a relief to me because that's so transparency is our friend, right? Like the more obvious it is, the easier it is to combat. So I hope that they try to launch their central bank digital currencies as central bank digital currencies, that they don't try to dress it up as something else, because I think that becomes harder to fight against. Although I do want to say my philosophy with life, but, uh, but specifically with Bitcoin, is that we should never fight against anything. We should just build something better. You know, rather than fight against the old world, we should build a better world and make the old one obsolete. Don't give them that power. Don't give them that energy. Just put it towards, don't try to burn anything down. Just build something better. I agree with that. There, there's no point in fighting the system. We need to step out of the system and build our own. And Bitcoin empowers us yep. in doing that because you can compete with this enemy. You can only change the rule of the game and Bitcoin let us do that. Mm -hmm. so because up until now, they made the rules, but now Bitcoin let us do the rules. So yeah. let's see, I'm, I'm optimistic. Yeah. Let me ask you about uh, Mi Premier Bitcoin. I want to talk about it. Do, are you guys uh, also teaching why CBDC are bad in the curriculum now in the Mi Premier Bitcoin? Have you thought about that? That's not a focus that we have now. I mean, there could be a point where we do have to focus on that more. But I think the idea that we have is when the student leaves the class, then they are a little bit more able to think for themselves. And I think the more able we all are to think for ourselves and to think critically, the less likely central bank digital currencies will have success. So in our own way, we're fighting against it, but maybe not very directly. That makes sense. How do you find people to help you? And uh, how many people are helping you with me, Premier Bitcoin at this point? Yeah. How big is your team? So it's actually one of the problems that we have is finding a place for all the people that want to help, <laughs> which is a great problem to have. But we have our core active people. I actually gave a list of this for adopting. So that would be, and this is basically everybody in the group. There might be one or two, not on this, but uh, that was 16 people. So I'll say we could say 20 people are active. And then there's a few dozen more who are supporters, but not very active day to day helping, but you know, maybe they pitch in every, every now and then. So I want to ask you, like, do you have people that work with you like full time and do they support themselves? Like maybe with their Bitcoin that I bought 10 years ago, or do you have people that need to be like paid because it's their time? They need to feed themselves and their family maybe. Yeah. So we do have people that work full time and maybe it's worth stating that we are Bitcoin only and we really take that very seriously. So we don't spend anything except Bitcoin, which includes the salaries that we pay teachers and other staff. Everything is Bitcoin. So yeah, we do have some full-time staff and we do pay them. We don't pay them nearly what they deserve because that's just, we're focused on growth and we prioritize students. So we try to minimize like the admin costs, but you know, people need to eat. So we do pay them. There are people who are volunteers that effectively work full time, myself being one of them, but there's a number of other people who effectively work full time, but don't take any salary. But then there are people that do take a salary and, you know, there's no critique on that. You know, we're all in different places and and they're all very much earning what, what they get. And that's something that we want to 
change, right? So we want to lean into that even more, actually have more full-time people because, you know, the project is not very old. It's, it's a little bit more than a year old and it began pretty ad hoc. It's really grown quite a bit. So we are past the point and we're, we're actively working on this. We've been actively working on it for a couple of months, but you know, it's a process to professionalize the organization. And that means more full-time. It means actually increasing the budget for professional staff, for people who are just like really great at what they do, really great, really dedicated and aren't juggling it with a bunch of other things that they could really dedicate themselves to it. It's a mix now. It's most people are volunteers, but the really active core that is split between paid staff and, and also some volunteers. So how can Bitcoiner abroad or even in El Salvador help you? How can we make this faster? So we need three things, money, expertise, and exposure. So money is obvious, right? We spend money on, you know, as I was saying, we do pay teachers, we do pay staff, but we also pay students, right? Like we give a bonus in SATs to students in the class so they, they could use Bitcoin, right? So all our classes are interactive and they involve um, actually using Bitcoin and students keep the SATs at the end. And then like tonight, for example, we actually have a meetup tonight in San Salvador. We have a monthly meetup here, another one in San Miguel. And the concept is similar there. We give $5 in Bitcoin to the first hundred people that come and we negotiate a discount. If you pay with Bitcoin at the place, obviously all these meetups are places that accept Bitcoin. So the idea there is to encourage people to make real world transactions with Bitcoin in a safe environment, right? Like we go ahead of time and we talk to the staff, make sure everybody knows how to accept and if they have any questions, but you know, that, that costs money, right? So, which is all to say, like, money is helpful. You could always donate. That is gasoline to this engine. But the other thing is expertise, people that are just really good at what they do. For example, where there's two lawyers that we're working with now, one that we've been working with for a few months, but one that is pretty new. They're really great. And their knowledge base is just different from mine, different from other people in the group. There's things that come up where I'm like, I have no idea what to do with this. Like, And they do. They know that. So we need those experts. We need experts in everything, right? Because we have brand ambitions. El Salvador is the focus now because this is the most important place in the world. But our ambitions are global. We need experts for everything. And then the third thing is exposure. That's what's happening right here, right? That's what you're doing. You're helping with exposure. Because again, this isn't really one of our strengths. You know, our philosophy was to just start, right? It wasn't to, okay, let's make sure everybody knows what we're doing. Let's make sure that we have like all this money. And that, no, it was like, let's just do it. Let's do it and worry about the rest later, which, you know, there's... <laughs> There's pros and cons to that approach. I'm, I'm really happy with how everything worked out, but it, but it also means that we didn't prioritize things that we now recognize are really useful and really helpful. Just getting that exposure. So yeah, I would say those are the three things that people could do from anywhere. I mean, to be honest, I like your approach because I think perfect is the enemy of done. And we need to speed up this education. I think it's really important. We need to teach as many people and as fast as possible. You know, our teachers are all Salvadorians. So the project is international and it's mostly Salvadorians, but there's a fair mix of international people in there as well. But the teachers are all Salvadorians and a lot of them are bilingual, but not all of them are. And one of the things that we want to do is we just want to support everyone that works with the organization. So we have a lot of internal classes, like more advanced classes about Bitcoin for the teachers. And also we want to start to offer English classes to everybody that works with us. So, you know, there's like language is not a barrier. Anybody can help. 
Wow. Okay. Yeah, that's good to hear because my Spanish is not great yet. So it's challenging for me to teach Spanish speaking people. But when people speak English, it's a it's very it's a different game. So recently you guys had your book open source, your educational material open source, right? Can I ask you what was the motivation behind that decision? Yeah, so I happen to have it right here. It's a nice visual aid. Um <laughs> Wow. This is the third edition. We started the first class of the first Bitcoin diploma was April 23rd. And we did not have a lot of time to prepare for that. We just had a few weeks to create the curriculum for it, which was a, you know, pretty <laughs> ambitious uh, task. And in fact, the first one, we, we only had the first few weeks, we were still like building the curriculum, even after the course started, it was just the timeline was very crunched there. So in recognition that we would learn as we go, we would get feedback from students and just with time, you know, be like, huh, what if we did this differently that we would be able to improve? So every 10 weeks, we're now in the third group, like the third session, I guess, which is why we're on the third edition. When that 10 weeks ended, we immediately started a new group and with the second edition and now a third edition. And just a cool aside, the first group was one school, 38 students. By the second group, it was two schools, 100 students. And now the current one, we are working in three schools, one island, and out of two mayor's offices. So six locations, and we'll have like about 250 students now. So every 10 weeks, we're more than doubling. And that is, I have no doubt that we will continue that trend. Every 10 weeks, we will more than double. But anyway, back to the curriculum and, and open source. Because it was rushed, we didn't think that version one, version two were the best ones to share widely. There's going to be a version four. There's going to be a version five. We're going to continue to improve and learn lessons because that's how we should all approach life, I think, right? Like we could always do better. We could always improve. Don't let perfect be the enemy of good, but there's always lessons to learn. So we'll continue to improve, but we feel pretty good about version three. We feel like, yes, we will improve it. There are things that surely we could do better. We'll get feedback and be like, yeah, yeah, we should do that. But we feel good about that it's ready to share with the world. I'm biased. Anybody could go and look at it themselves and, and make up their own mind. And I had nothing to do with the curriculum development, right? This is none of the credit goes to me. It's we've had a really great team that has worked on this and they've just done a really amazing job. So we're confident to share it with the world. And our mission is to help Bitcoin education. So what's the best way to do that? And it's to make it as accessible as possible, which is why our courses are free is a restriction, right? That means that we need like more money because we're not charging for the courses, but that also creates a barrier to entry once you start charging. And maybe we will, that's something that we've thought about to charge for like more advanced courses maybe, but intro classes should always be free. They will always be free because that becomes a barrier to entry then. It defeat the purpose, yeah. yeah. At this stage, yes, at this yeah. stage. And so we want to make it as easy as possible. We know that like we've seen that people have downloaded the Bitcoin diploma and they've printed it out. People have sent us photos that they've made like at their local print shop, all these books, and they're teaching their neighbors and their friends and everything. Wow, that's amazing. In different parts of the world like that. And we just want to enable that, right? We have, and I hope we always have. I'm just really happy with the team and proud of the group that has come together because they care about the right things. And yeah, Bitcoin is for everyone. So that means Bitcoin education has to be for everyone. Is the book translated in uh, English and Spanish only at the moment? Have you considered looking for people volunteer to translate it in uh, more languages? So at the moment, it's actually just in Spanish. Okay. Uh, we 
have plans to translate it into English and we've started that process. We hope to have that soon. This is another really cool thing. It's actually translated into Korean as well. Someone in Korea downloaded it and translated it. And this is, you know, we have a lot of what I'll call good problems because now, you know, there's a pull request on GitHub to have this Korean translation and none of us speak Korean. So like we can't go through it and make sure that like, you know, it's, it's a decent translation. So we have to find someone to help us with that. So the next ones will be English and Korean, but I anticipate that next year it will be in a variety of languages and we're going to do English just because there's already a bunch of opportunities for us to use it in English. And that seems like there's a lot of demand there. But the longer term plan is to create a space where people that want to help with creating Bitcoin education materials like curriculum development could come together and across languages, across themes. So it could be someone in Portugal and, and someone in Mozambique. They come together because they're interested in either translating what we already have into Portuguese or maybe they, they want to make their own thing. And, and well, we want to provide a space for them to get together and to distribute it then. But it could also be thematic, right? It could be like some people that get together like, you know what? There's not a lot of Bitcoin materials focused on senior citizens. Let's do that. You know, like who's who's looking for that? This is a longer term plan. We've got a lot of on our plate already. But the vision is to create a space where we empower people to take that next step, right? So Meet Premier Bitcoin wants to empower people. We want to empower students to take their first step. But we also want to empower Bitcoiners to take their next step. So we're just getting started. I love the way you think and exponential growth. It's hard to predict and manage. So you have good problems. That is true. And that's very good to hear for any Bitcoiner at this point. Also, I have a lot of people that listen to me from Europe, from Sweden for some reason. <laughs> so I just want to say, everybody, if you want to help with the translation, we can help the adoption of Bitcoin. And there's always something that we can do to help. Yeah, absolutely. So John, let's close our chat talking about the conference adopting Bitcoin. Yes, that's a great way to close. We're really looking forward to adopting Bitcoin November 15th to 17th. All the profits from the conference will go towards Bitcoin education, including to my first Bitcoin. So that's where we're super appreciative of, of the conference and Galoi, which is organizing the conference to give us that opportunity to help us. I'll, I'll be on a panel. I'll also have a a solo speaking slot. We're going to have a booth there. We're going to have the Bitcoin diploma, like physical copies there. Obviously it's free. You could just go download it on your own, but we'll have physical copies there. If you do want to buy one, we'll have some merch so people could support in that way. You know, we see it as a donation through other means, right? Because it's just a different way to get money to help support what we're doing. But we're working hard in these next few weeks to really nail down some hard numbers and just a concrete plan for expansion in 2023. I think I mentioned before that we went from in a year 500 students to 10,000. So 20x of 10,000 would be 200,000. And I feel confident in saying that we will do even better next year. I would consider that the floor of students of all kinds that I'm not talking about diploma students or injured, like that's everything that includes everyone. So we are super excited about adopting. We think that it's, you know, again, talking about exposure, this is not our strength. Our strength is that we are here. Our strength is that 
we care, that we are willing to make sacrifices to give time, energy, money, and we're willing to make mistakes and to learn from them, right? Like, I think the strength of Bitcoin is the passion and the spirit. And again, we're trying to fix all these things, right? We're trying to improve everything, but we hope to get more exposure with Adopt-in, right? To get sure people will go to the conference that know nothing or know little about the project. We hope when they leave, they know something or a lot about the project and maybe they translate something for us or they donate or they come back, move here and work for us. You know, <laughs> as I told you already, me Premier Bitcoin is my favorite project uh, just because I agree with you that education is the most important thing right now to get people to learn about Bitcoin. So John, I'm very appreciative of our conversation. So before we close it, where can people find you or me Premier Bitcoin and how can they help? They can find me on Twitter. That would be jdenehy underscore rights. But more importantly, and probably easier, they could find me from our Bitcoin on Twitter. So that would be my first Bitcoin underscore, which is also the same for Instagram. And in order to help, send us a message on Twitter if they want to get in touch or Instagram. They could also reach out on the webpage. The webpage is meetpremierbitcoin.io or myfirstbitcoin.io. So it's bilingual. We have it in both languages. There's actually a contact form if you want to be a volunteer. Well, there's a donate page, right? If you want to donate, then do it do it on the website. And if they want to contribute in other ways, like they want to see about working or volunteering, if they just want to reach out, then we have a form that they could fill out to volunteer. Perfect. I'm honored to talk to you about this. Like, and I've been following you guys and I wish I had more time right now to help you, but I will get to the point that uh, I can be more involved uh, yeah, with well, you and the organization. And hopefully people will watch this video or listen to the podcast and reach out to you. Of course, I'm going to put all the links uh, down below. So make sure to check out the description box so you can find the website, the Twitter handles and everything to reach out to John and to be Premier Bitcoin. Yeah, John, thank you. Thank you very much. Is there any last word that you want to make sure the audience today hear from you? Thank you and thank the audience and the, the larger community just because I am so happy with where we are today. It almost isn't real sometimes. Like It's hard to believe what's happened, all the things that have transpired in the past year. It is not because of me. It is not because of, of anyone. It's because of everyone, right? It's because we've gotten such amazing support and that is what keeps us going. That is the blood to this body. That's incredible what you guys are doing. The growth, it's also impressive, which is a good sign for everybody. So John, thank you very much again. Thank you everybody for watching us or listening to us, depending on the platform you're using. Bitcoin is very important. We need to make sure to do whatever we can to help organization like me premier bitcoin and people like john to make sure that the world gets bitcoin before they get cbdc <laughs> so thank you all and i'll see you at the next one bye john bye